Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to episode 207 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me as always is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello. Sam Mendez, 1917, was slated to be our last official episode, apart from the December donor pick. But due to some scheduling shuffle with the studios, we are filling in the gap with Greta Gerwig's Little Women, based on the novel of the same name by Louisa May Alcott. And to be honest, Aaron, I wasn't really excited about this one, as I hadn't read the book, and my interest in period pieces is mild to say the least. But it turns out a mind can be changed. So this is your official spoiler warning as we take a deep dive into the world of these four March sisters. How about that for an intro? I feel like that should be like on a big screen or something. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was it was pretty good. <laughs> I may send that to a studio and say, hey, what do you think? Could I do some voiceover? Could I be the next Don LaFontaine? Maybe. I don't know. All right. Enough of that. Aaron, let's get started with one more takeaways. What's uh, what's yours? My one more takeaway, Patrick, is refreshing. When was the last time that a domestic drama period piece awards contender had a PG rating? Yeah, I can't I think know. of it, right? And so I love what Greta Gerwig has done in this masterful retelling of Louisa May Alcott's classic. It is a love letter to the source material that I think is as delightful as it is artistically terrific. And the fun new meta twist that honestly could have gone terribly awry instead highlights the theme of owning your own story. And it hammers home Joe's arc in an impactful new way. The acting is just as brilliant as you should expect from this supremely talented group. Of young actors, and I think that the supporting cast of veterans, we have Laura Dern, we have Meryl Streep, we have Tracy Letts again, we have Chris Cooper, they are every bit as perfect in their roles. Each and every element of this film adds to its delight, from the production design, to the cinematography, to the score, and I think that Gerwig's film is already the best of the many movie versions of this famous story. And with every new viewing, I have fallen deeper under its spell. When it makes me happy, I cry. When it makes me sad, I cry. And when it inspires me, I cry. So you see what the running theme is here. The movie makes me cry. This is a special film. It's a comfort film. And it has a completely euphoric ending. And for a story that many would rightfully have questioned why we need yet another version of, I think I can gladly say thank you, Greta, because we absolutely did. And I'm grateful that a whole new generation of little women will have this film to grow up with. I couldn't agree with you more. I think Greta Gerwig is just doing phenomenal work. This is her third feature. Um, I haven't seen her first, but of course we covered Lady Bird and we both are in love with that just as much. And I had an opportunity to go on one of the few movie dates with my wife, and this was one of them. She was excited about it. Yay! Yay! And I walk in, and I think the mean age in the theater when we were in there was, I think, 55 uh, before we walked in. So we definitely pulled it down a little bit. 
And the demographic was definitely not leaning toward the men in the audience. I remember looking around and thinking, I think I'm the only guy in here. I think there were a couple of older gentlemen with their, with their beloved spouses that were joining them, uh, probably for the same reason that I was joining my wife, which is, hey, this is going to be a great night to spend with the love of your life. And when I left the theater, the only word that I could use to describe this movie was unexpected. Not only my reaction to it, I I told Krisha I like that a whole lot more than I thought I would. And I love, love, love coming out of a theater feeling that way because the opposite of that is completely tragic where you want something to be so great and it turns out to just be a disappointment. And, you know, I get that some of that's on me and my own personal expectations. So going into a movie where I don't have a lot of interest in in terms of period pieces in terms of a female centric drama it's not something that i'm going to gravitate towards but in gerwig i trust and i didn't think it was going to be a bad movie i just didn't know it was going to impact me the way it did but not only was it unexpected for me as a moviegoer i think the story itself was kind of unexpected in terms of when i think of period pieces i think of all English accents. I think it's very, I won't call it pretentious, but I remember going into the movie already having kind of a one word takeaway of like sensible because I thought this is going to be women and really fun, like civil war attire. And it's going to be fancy and common, just neat. And I think you were subliminally comparing it to sense and sensibility in your head. I, prob- I probably <laughs> was. I probably was. <laughs> and to be honest, Aaron, I have a disdain um, from high school of reading things like Wuthering Heights and Emma. I mean, these, these were books that we were forced to read. And I remember my junior year, we were covering, I think it was Wuthering Heights or something like that. And we had an opportunity to cover Pride and Prejudice, or maybe it was the other way around. And the guys in my English class revolted and said, we want something with dudes. We don't want any more female centric books that we have to read. And so we got our way and we got Kafka's The Metamorphosis, which was (laughs) a really interesting divergence uh, from what we were reading. So going into Little Women, I kind of expected something else. I expected this kind of story of post-Civil War life, these sisters who were just living life. But what I got was an emotional attraction to each one of their stories. Obviously, Joe stands out, but Each one of them has a story to tell. And what Gerwig does is she allows those stories to breathe on screen without necessarily compromising any of the characters. Every character in here feels important. They feel purposeful. They don't feel like they're throwaways. I think that's by design. Having not read the source material, I can't really make a comparison to that. But I will say that if you're going to talk about a love letter to source material. I think little women is one of those that definitely needs to be seen and appreciated by an audience that's wider than just us two. And I hope that people who are interested in finishing out the year at the theater, they will give this a chance. In fact, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. He and his wife were trying to pick out a movie to go see. And I said, go see little women. They're like, really? We're thinking about Star Wars. And I was like, keep thinking about Star Wars. Go actually see Little Women. I applaud you. Because this is a movie that I think is going to be an Oscar contender, but it really deserves 
an audience right now. It's hard at the end of the year because you're like getting your your decade picks in at this point. You're getting your top tens of the year, and it's hard to say, "Wow, is this really that good?" Um, and at the same time, you have to say, "Yeah, it is." And it, yeah, it was very unexpected for me to respond that way. And it's also a Christmas movie. <laughs> it is a Christmas movie. <laughs> it is a Christmas movie, and then it's got three scenes that take place at Christmas. So multiple Christmases. I mean, it, come on, we, we span multiple Christmases in the same movie. That has got to count. I, yes, I think this is a movie that will be, it will go on my list as we need to watch this at Christmas. I'll talk about it later, but it certainly captures the heart of Christmas. More for so sure. than most movies we consider Christmas movies. So. For, for sure. It's no elf, but it definitely stands out. <laughs> <laughs> you talked in your one word takeaway about some of the meta-ness of the, of the story, and I, I definitely picked up on that. I also picked up on something that makes a movie like this stand out in a, in an interesting way. And that's the relevance that it has to some of the issues that we face today as a, as a culture, as a society that surprised me more than anything, Aaron, because I didn't expect to say, wow, that's still going on. I mean, this is post civil war stuff. You've got a female led cast who are all very ambitious women. They are trying to make the, their way in the world in their own different ways. They all have different motives, but there are so many different scenes and so many different sub stories that take place in here that really explore the roles of women in class ambition and societal roles that my wife and I were talking about it afterwards. And she said, man, that's still relevant today. The way in which women are struggling with trying to get their voice heard in terms of not just being literary figures, but feeling like they're important, not being defined by the man that they are married to, trying to figure out what it means to actually be happy. I mean, these are things that we wrestle with as people. Specifically, there are definitely female-centric types of themes here, but I was pleasantly surprised that this is a conversation that I can have with people today about how are we living this out? How is this affecting us? How do we handle what it's like to be a part of a middle-class society compared to the upper 10%? How do women feel today when they're in a lot of ways getting paid a percentage less for doing the same job as a man? These are definite issues that, that are relevant today. And Little Women really gives us permission to talk about these things and reminds us that these are not new, that these have been going on for hundreds of years, literally. And so it tells me that they're still relevant, still important, and they still need to be worked out and talked through. Yeah, you're spot on with that. And I think that, you know, for me, I came into this much like you did. Well, I have read the source material. It was a long time ago in a land far away called Arkansas. Um, I was, I think... 14 or 15 ish one of my first jobs we had a brand new awesome library built in Maumelle. i don't know if you remember it it was on the lake and it was very much glass so there was windows of glass everywhere it was gorgeous and i started working there i was a big book nerd at the time and i loved to read the classics and i remember a little woman being one of the first books that i got from that library and read and I hated it <laughs> because it was all about girls and, <laughs> and 
all about these girls and like all this crap the girls were going through and like civil war and I didn't care. And it was, you know, I was a teenage boy and, uh, and you know, here we are later and I reacted very differently to it. And, you know, as I said in my one more takeaway, how I've sort of, I feel like had my appreciation deepened for it as I've gotten multiple viewings under my belt and I've had the blessing of being able to see it three times already. I have allowed myself to get to know each of these characters and I am very protective of them now. I, I feel like I understand them and I am excited about their lives. And so it's a, a very different storytelling method than the book. And I think in the way that Gerwig frames it kind of with a very people will say this is a modernized version, which can be really confusing if somebody hears that and then goes to see this movie, because it's not modernized in the sense that it's in set in 2019, which is usually what we would kind of think of when we say something is modernized. Like we're transporting a story from the past into the future to retell it with a new spin. But the way the characters deliver their language, even though it's mostly the same language, right? The way the characters just carry themselves, it feels as if it's modern. And I think that that gives us the ability to really hone in on all of those societal themes and the gender issues, the marriage confliction that women have to deal with that are still things that we're you know dealing with today. And, uh, and I love it. I think it's a fantastic and important kind of movie for people to see, especially young girls, which is really what this was kind of about in the beginning, right? Little women. I specifically watched it with my teenage daughter for that reason. I wanted her to get to see this wide range of girls. And that's what's, I think, brilliant about the way that this story is composed. Because you have these four different women, young women, and especially Marnie, who are kind of different all in their motivations and all in their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations and the way that they go about living their lives. And so it's really easy, I think, for people to relate to one of them. And when you can relate to someone, you can see the way that they deal with a situation and start to think about what that might mean for yourself. And it's really well done in that regard, I think. One of the things that, um, for me, is the biggest thing about this is just the the whole institution of marriage. And I, I know there's, you know, institutionalized sexism of the time that we see frequently in this, but just the main theme seems to be like this idea of marriage. And, and what is the difference between marriage versus love and you know, what are our characters going to do? How do they marry? All the different girls kind of have a, a different viewpoint on marriage, whether it's Beth or Amy or Joe or even Marmy to an extent. And I, I like watching that play out. And I think that Gerwig's way of telling the story in her nonlinear fashion. I'll tell you, Patrick, it actually kind of was off-putting to me the first time I saw it. It was one of the things that I had to get over. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> I'm a little lost. 
But by the end of the movie, I realized what was happening and I understood it. And I actually came to appreciate it very much. Now it doesn't bother me at all. When we start off by seeing these ladies as adults, we realize it's very, it's a lot more impactful when you watch how quickly they had to transition into this. And you see this, you see them go back and you realize what has been lost, right? Um, when you, when you see where they've already ended up. And, and I appreciated that. And I also like the fact that she changes the tone of the cinematography. I don't know if you noticed this, but there is like a, a more, it's almost like Marriage Story and how Marriage Story had a different look to LA scenes versus New York scenes. Uh, you get a different tenderness of the, of the frame. You get a, a warmer color to scenes in the past than you do, or is it in the present? Yeah, it's, it's more striking in the present than it is in the past. And it just, it helps you distinguish where you're at in any given timeline since the actresses don't really age. Yeah, there's, that was something that, that I noticed about Gerwig's choice in how she tells the story. And I admit that even after the movie, Christian and I were both talking about how that was a challenge to overcome in trying to figure out where are we, what time frame are we in. But she gives us enough clues visually to let us know if we're in the past or in the, quote, present, even though the present is the past by our standards. But, you know, when you have things as as significant as Joe's hair being chopped off, that indicated the past versus the present where it's more, uh, you know, obviously it's longer. There is a distinct color palette. There is a, a colder color palette in the present that is really more reflective of the emotional tone that Gerwig is trying to articulate. And in the past, you can definitely tell that, especially around the Christmas mornings, there is a vibrance. There's a warmth to it. There's an, in, an almost like an inviting sense of, Come in, experience our family for this, these next few minutes, which is different than some of the scenes with just one or two people. The lighting is a lot, uh, not darker, but it's a lot cooler. There are definitely more blues and greens and grays that are dominant in the scenes as opposed to your reds and yellows and your whites in the past. And, and that's an, that becomes intentional because by the time we get to, the full present, I guess by the third part of the movie, particularly when one of my favorite visually uh, appealing scenes is that very last one where Joe is walking through the house and we're essentially getting caught up where all, with where all the sisters are based on this big party that is being thrown in this renovated house that's turned into a school. The color is so vibrant. It's so bright. The sun's out and it's beautiful. It feels alive. It feels like spring. And that's a distinction that I think Gerwig is trying to show us and saying, look, this is new life. This is a not even a starting over, but it's a moving forward because of where they were, where they are and where they're going as sisters and as individuals. And that's that's challenging, I think, as a director to give an even amount of emotional weight to these four women. It's not little woman. It's little women. I mean, there are four distinct personalities, as you mentioned, in this story, and they are anchored by Joe. The movie is bookended 
by her on screen at the beginning and at the end. And I think that's by design. Again, I'm trying to separate the source material from the movie. So I'm speaking specifically for the movie and saying that there's an important piece there in having Joe anchor these other four women. She wasn't even the oldest, I don't think. But I think, was she the oldest? Okay, you're nodding with affirmation. So I think that's part of it then. But I think also she, in her own way, was the freest of of the sisters. I think she was a person that knew what she wanted. She felt, at least for most of the narrative, she felt like she knew what she wanted and what she didn't want. And she pursued that. And in a lot of ways, I don't know that the story would have been as impactful for the other three sisters if she wasn't the anchor. I don't want to call her the focal point. I just want to keep it. I'm using anchor very specifically to dial into the fact that the other sisters really kind of gravitated towards her in a lot of the things that they were doing. Everything kind of spun off of her, but it wasn't her story. It was theirs. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, this is a slightly autobiographical-ish type of story in the first place. Now, Louisa May Alcott is not saying she had all of the same experiences that Joe March did, but it is sort of a stand-in for herself in many ways because Joe is wanting to defy the social conventions of the time period and stand up to that. And this is a way that Louisa May Alcott was able to kind of express that through a written form. And so that's kind of the reason that we're following Joe. Now, what you don't know, because you haven't read the book, is that, you know, all that stuff at the end. So basically, Tracy lets his character at the beginning and the end. He is an addition that really gives this a meta feel. And in the in the actual story of this, you know, Louisa May Alcott had to succumb to the pressure of not only this the writing publishers who wanted her to make sure that, you know, make sure your woman gets married or is dead. Either works, as Tracy Letts says. But she ends up getting Joe married to a foreigner, right? And the reason was because she got so much pressure that that had to be the way the story ended, even from her readers, right? Because that was what everybody kind of knew. That's what was expected. And so her way of rebelling against that was to marry Joe off to like the most boring person in the world because everybody, the book was written in two parts and everybody wanted Joe to marry Laurie. And so she was like, well, I'm not going to give you Joe marrying Laurie, but I'll allow you to have this marriage, right? But what she really wanted for Joe was that Joe would remain this spinstress, right? This literary person that she, she says that term literary spinstress means, means, means like a, you know, single creative type, essentially, that was who Joe was. Um, despite some of the struggles Joe has throughout the film with like balancing her different desires for relationship versus her independence and how that can look. And so in a sense, the way that the ending works here, it allows Louisa May Alcott to have the end that she never did because Joe is able to both have the happy marriage and also have complete independence, i.e. control of her own work. She gets to own it and she gets to make the decisions for herself of what it's going to be like. And so it's really a cool, unique spin that's put on it. And, and I agree. I, don't, I think that 
if you were to just try and tell this story and do it as if it was like a, an equal ensemble with all of these four characters without Joe kind of as your connecting, without anybody as your connecting point, it wouldn't work nearly as well, but she makes it pull together and links everything in a way that is very relatable and easy for us to kind of flow through the different ages and stages of their lives. Exactly. And the fact is the three sisters, in addition to her, have their own thing that they're bringing to the table. To me, as someone who has trouble with names in stories, this helped me connect the women uh, and be able to distinguish them because of their independent talents. You have um, you have Joe, who's the writer. You have um, Amy, who is the painter. You have Beth, who's the musician. And finally, you have Meg, who's the actor, which I didn't pick up on until late in the movie. I was like, well, what's her talent? What's her hidden talent? What does she have? Yeah, there's some early scenes where they're acting in the plays that Joe has written, and they talk about like her going off to be on the stage. And then there's like yeah. one brief scene where they push her and they say, no, but don't marry him. Like, you need to go be an actress. And she's like, yeah. oh, I want to be his wife. And that's that's what confirmed it for me. So it was helpful from an audience standpoint to be able to distinguish these characters from each other. But it also allowed me to appreciate the fact that they were their own people. They weren't necessarily all trying to be like each other. I think the best scenes that I thought were played as well as they could from a screenplay standpoint, as well as a blocking standpoint, were the pseudo bickering that they had with each other uh there's this great scene where i believe it's christmas morning <laughs> of course and they have this huge huge breakfast spread and they're getting ready to have a meal and marmy comes in she's just visited this uh i guess this widow and her children down the road and she looks at them and they look at her and she said, would you be willing to give up your breakfast to go serve? And the next thing you see is, of course, they're willing. But even on the road, they're having these great sister conversations. And you see them just almost like a dance, working with each other, understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses, knowing how to help one another. And we don't even have to get the dialogue to understand that these women as distinct as they are, they're sisters. They really are in this amazing four sister relationship. And I love the fact that apart from a couple of scenes that were driven by different motives, none of them ever felt the need to squash one another's ambitions. They all lifted each other up. And this is going back to what you talked about, about this PG movie uh, aspect. This is a very positive film. One that, up there with like peanut butter Falcon, we need, we need these movies to inspire hope in us and allow us to be able to really see the best in each other. You have these four young women who look at each other and they say, you know what? We're sisters and we bicker and we argue and we poke at each other. But at the end of the day, man, we love each other so, so deeply. And to see these small moments where, where Beth is like telling Joe on the beach, tell me a story, tell me a story. And we we see the, the sisters encouraging Meg to just pursue this acting career, even though she has a different ambition 
independent of that. And then to see Amy in Paris doing these fantastic pieces of art, uh, these, these great scenes where you see her compared to these other painters who were like almost like finger painting. It really shows how talented these women are, but more than anything, just how well they have just con- continued to have this, this drive to get better at what they're good at. There's a great moment at the end where I can't remember his name. The eventual love interest of Joe says, do you play pointing to the piano? And they say, we all play, but, but Beth was the best of us in, in that regard. And I just, I love those moments, Aaron. I love the fact that they find ways in this story to elevate each other beyond just the fact that they're sisters. Well, they're supportive and it's indicative of the time, right? And that's kind of the point. And it is one of the interesting windows, I think, into what life is like then versus what life is like now. Now, I don't have siblings, so I can't really speak to what it's like to grow up with a sibling, even in modern day or the 80s, which you could talk some about. <laughs> but, you know, with the advent of modern technology, I would assume that it's harder and harder for this type of relationship to exist on this level. Um, I would expect people would do siblings grow up with different activities. I know for, I can speak about my kids, you know, for example, one is off doing future business of leaders of America stuff. And the other one's doing a sport stuff. And so their time together between school and after school activities, it's kind of really limited these sisters depend on each other for everything. My goodness, their father's gone. And at one point, their mother's gone. And it's just them, right? They just have each other. And because of the way of the world, Amy is relied upon to go and marry Rich in order for the family to be taken care of. At one point, Joe is having to do things like sell her hair because she has to find a way to take care of the family. This is not something that they are choosing out of, you know, joy necessarily. And they give joyfully in that sense. But this is not something that we would want kids to have to ever have to do. But it's necessary in order for their family to survive while their father is off fighting in the war. And the breadwinner is not there, right? And so they, I think, grow into this relationship and without distraction and, and each other is what you have. And so, yeah, it is beautiful, man. I love seeing them support each other in their art. You pointed out so many of the great examples of that. And, you know, even the way in which they are able to quickly get past their own selfishness and kind of encourage each other to get past their selfishness, like that scene you mentioned at the breakfast table where Marmy asks them to give up their breakfast to a family in need. And they're frustrated and they're like, it's Christmas morning. Like, no, I want my breakfast. And ultimately they go out and you see them happily going and giving, right? It's almost a little bit bittersweet too, that that act is what ultimately leads to Beth contracting scarlet fever because it's the same family that she is going to, continue helping that she catches it from 
but yeah, it is a beautiful relationship that they have. And I think that's one of the things that we can learn from this. Honestly, we, one of the other great moments of this, I, I like a lot is when they come home from the dance early on and Meg is twisted her ankle or whatever. And you watch Meg fall into the chair and all of the girls like surround her and fawn over her. And they're like helping her and checking her leg. And what can I bring you? I mean, it's love in action is what it is. And we also, we all the time we see people say love, I love you. And this is me telling you how I feel. But what we see in little women is constant action of that. And it's, that's part of that refreshingness that I really enjoy. Yeah. And when you see scenes of altruism that the, the girls do together, I think it further reinforces their deep love for each other because as you mentioned if that moment hadn't happened if you had this moment where they didn't go and serve you're right um you have somebody like beth who wouldn't have contracted scarlet fever and you wouldn't have gotten the deeper relationship that we see with joe and how she cares for her sister that much it doesn't make her care more about that one sister but it allows her to show the depth of love that she has for her and it it's this is a movie that i think allows us to see what it means to really we throw around the word blessed a lot this is a a concept that we were talking about in a conversation today and about how sometimes a blessing doesn't necessarily mean the good things that you get it's the tragedy and challenges that you're in and that you somehow overcome through different circumstances, different people. And I think Little Women is a testament to, if we looked at these characters and we said to each of them, do you feel like you're blessed? I think all of them would say a resounding yes as they've experienced all these things. And I love that Gerwig doesn't just show us the the great times, the fun banter that I enjoy. They show She shows us these moments of real tragedy not just death, but also the moment that Amy burns Joe's book. These are thoughts. These are things, you know, you don't have photocopies of these, Aaron. You don't have these saved in the cloud. I, I remember feeling real tension when I'm watching Amy burn these pages and seeing her just thumb through this book flippantly as Joe comes home and says, oh, I need to write this down in my, in my diary. I need to get this thought down. And she's like, where, where's my, where are my stories? Where are my papers? And Amy just looks at her like, sorry, you know, I wanted to go to this dance. And I mean, it wasn't just that. It was the tension the next morning where you have this moment where, where Marmy is trying to get them to forgive the night before. Don't go to, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And Joe is completely honest about the fact that she says, I can't do that. I cannot forgive her. I am so upset. And I love the honesty in that because that could be a, you know, no offense, a hallmark moment where you're getting the, the music that swells and like, Oh, they're going to forgive. No, Joe lost something, but there is something about the depth of a love that you have for a sibling for a sister or a brother and not just blood, but I mean, in relationships that you have with someone that you're close to like that in a brotherly or sisterly way that through hardship, through choices that you make, you eventually 
have to not have to, but you eventually do forgive because you can't live with that, with that brokenness and that guilt and that unevenness that you have with that uh, brother or sister. And, and Gerwig handles that very delicately and very real at the same time. It didn't feel like it's wrapped up in a nice little bow, but it also doesn't feel like it's overly dramatized. It feels very natural. And I think that's something that I gravitated towards in Little Women was how natural these relationships with these four women felt, uh, and particularly with each other, but also with the, with the other folks in their lives, like the, the men and, and other folks. Well, I want to talk about uh, each of these women just kind of one by one, if you don't mind for a minute, because sure. I think that they have such great, unique personalities and unique arcs. Um, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on them, of course, but this, first of all, I just want to be able to quote a lot because for me, this movie and this story has so many quotable moments. It's one of those great scripts based on the book, of course, coming from Louisa May Alcott mostly, where I'm just scribbling and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's an amazing thing to be said. And it, and it so much of it is resonant today. And, you know, you think about someone like Beth. And I want to start with Beth because Beth is like the forgotten sister, in my opinion, because nothing really happens with Beth except she dies. Like that's what everybody remembers at least that's what i remembered was i remembered there were three sisters and then there was one dead one and and that sounds horrible for me i loved eliza scanlon's performance here she is the lesser known actress by a mile right i didn't know who she was going into this she has the lesser part she doesn't have as many moments actually you know i'd almost say she probably has close to as many moments as emma watson actually in the film but she feels kind of like the fourth banana of the sisters because she doesn't leave home. She doesn't really ever achieve anything, if you will, other than be incredibly kind and incredibly good. And the thing that I feel I really took away from Beth's storyline, Patrick, was primarily with relation to the relationship that she she comes to have with Mr. Lawrence about this piano. What I liked seeing about Beth was how incredibly grateful she was for everything. And she is the sister above all who I feel like is the rule follower. She reminded me a lot of my daughter, <laughs> to be honest. She is going to do it because Marmy said that they should do it. And Marmy knows what Marmy's talking about. And so they should do that thing. And there's a couple, there were so many connecting points in this film for me. Um, one of them is when Beth is at Mr. Lawrence's playing the piano and he is breaking down in tears, listening to her. And I, it makes me want to cry just thinking about it because she's filling this role. Um, and he tells her such at one point, right before he discovers she has scarlet fever. He says, you know, you remind me of my daughter and it's, Back to that refreshing part, you don't see that kind of thing in movies in 2019 stories. Um, old man who's widowed, living across the street, looking out for four young girls, the youngest of which comes over to his house to play the piano for him, 
and he hugs her and says, you remind me of my daughter. And it is a sweet moment. Exactly. Yeah. I I absolutely thought that I was like, is this the tension? Is he going to do something to her? Right. That's That's, where my 2019. Yeah. That's my 2019 mind is going is like, what's he going to do to her? I'm going to kill him. And no, he's not that. He's a gentle soul. We'll talk about him later. But like, yeah, but I mean, that's, but what it is, is there's a great back and forth in that scene where Beth has gone to do the deliveries to the um, family that ends up giving her scarlet fever. Um, And she comes back and the sisters are there and he has seen her outside of the window. And while she was gone, he was so moved by her giving nature that he sends the piano to her house for her to have full time. He's with a note saying, you know, I should have done this a long time ago before she can even really get the note read. She is out the door and on her way to his house to thank him. And it's this amazing back and forth. And then the next moment we get from her is like, she's like, I, I want to make shoes or, or early in the film. Like he lets her play the piano and she's like, I need to make him shoes for letting me play his piano. I loved her heart. And I think that Beth in a sense represents a purity for the girls that they all lose in some form or fashion as they struggle with how they're going to make their transition into their societal roles. And that's part of why it's such a huge loss for them because they don't feel like Beth ever got that chance to do that. While in my mind, Beth is going out probably happier than any of them are until the end of the film right? She's at peace. She loves every moment. She understands what it means to be thankful for what she has. And I I just, I think that she's really important to this story. I think she is too. And I don't know which sister it was, but one of them says she was the best of us. Yes, Yes. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that she knew who she was. The other three sisters what makes them interesting is that they in some way struggled with not, not their talent. They knew that they were good at X, Y, or Z, but they really struggled with what was this going to look like as an adult? Am I going to be a writer? Do I need to continue to pursue acting or do I need to pursue a life of being married to a man? Um, do I need to marry rich instead of being a painter? How do I handle this? There were question marks for Joe, Meg, and Amy. Beth, I think because she was home, she never left. Because she was the, quote, rule follower, she understood what her purpose was. She settled into that, and she was satisfied with it. I don't think she's – when I say she settled into it, I don't mean she settled for it. I think she settled into it because of the fact that she understood that this was the best that she could offer. And – it was weird to see the piano at their house because I thought, did she do something wrong? I mean, again, this is the 2019 mentality of before hearing Mr. Lawrence say, I should have done this a long time ago. I thought, oh my gosh, has this been an inappropriate relationship? Has she overstayed her welcome? No, he genuinely loved her. And honestly, Aaron, if she had a distinct role outside of the home 
it was to give him that fulfillment of having a daughter again. And her death, I think, was just as tragic for him because it was as if his daughter died twice. And that broke my heart because she didn't have to do anything. It wasn't like she made some huge impact on the world. She made an impact on the women and the people in her life. And that was enough. And to me, that's a great message. You don't have to make a huge clinging gong around the world. Sometimes it's just a simple ding of a bell that's going to make the difference to the person sitting across the table from you or sitting or, or living down the street from you. And I think she knew that without necessarily pursuing that actively. And I think one of the great moments for me was her in the midst of these other sisters kind of bickering about having to go to this family's house when their mother's away. She just gets up and does it. She's like, this is, she what, leaves. This is what I'm asked yeah, to do. Exactly. And yes, tragically, she gets scarlet fever, but this is just, it's who she is. She can't help it. It's, it's innate in her and, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And, and she gives context because so much of this can be immediately kind of condensed into this battle between, you know, what do you think about how a woman should choose marriage or not choose marriage? And how do you feel about how a woman should or should not have a career in the world? And what gets lost is that it's a perfectly acceptable choice to do neither. And that's what Marmy. Marmy was a domestic home wife, right? And, and uh, Aunt Marge actually speaks to that at some point. They're talking about that. It's so and funny. And she's too. like, you don't know anything about her. You don't know what her <laughs> hopes and dreams were. And we don't. And that's okay. But that is what she chose. Um, and Beth's kind of path is similar without the, the marriage aspect ever getting to that point where she just she feels like she's content in what she has chosen and i love that um the 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 next one would be meg um and you know she decides to be married she doesn't go the actress route she has one of the most famous quotes in all of little women history um which is when she says um what does she say? Something. Oh gosh. Uh, just because my dreams are different than yours, it doesn't mean that they're unimportant. One of the big kind of anthem phrases that women have quoted for all time, and understandably so. She puts it out there that, that it's okay to be married, and, and, and she's choosing this. She's choosing it willfully. I love watching her romance develop in little moments uh, with John. Because we don't get a ton of it. We just get like little scenes right here and there. Is John going to be there? And then John volunteering to go with Marmy and escort her. And you watch what that means to Meg. And again, I go back to actions. We live in a world where everybody wants to talk, 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 talk. And what I say is how I feel. But we see actions in Little Women constantly. John volunteers to do that because he has a good heart and because he cares about them all. Not to win Meg, but he does love Meg and he wants to help support because of that. He has feelings for her. That act is resonant with her. And then, of course, we have the moment that was a contending, connecting point for both of us, which is 
Meg having to make this decision about a dress. And, and this is part of why I like the structure now. We see this really early on before we've seen her as a child. And we, we, have, we don't even know what she might have been otherwise. We just see her as a wife who's in a poor relationship, struggling. And one of the things that stuck out to me in that moment is the other woman that is there in the store who is talking in her ear saying, do it, buy it, do this for yourself. Don't worry about your family. He'll, he'll love it. It'll be okay. You deserve this. And Meg makes that decision. And what's beautiful is seeing how that decision echoes throughout the film, I think. I think Meg is probably the sister that I connect with the most. And I think it has a lot to do with the way that she and John interact. And there are a couple of moments um, that become telling that, that scene where she's encouraged to buy the fabric that she can't afford coupled with that, the kitchen scene where she's talking to John and she tells him, <laughs> this is, this is just, I, I love this. I love the, the, the screenplay here. I love the writing. She says, she's trying to explain to him the extravagance of the, of the dress, the $50. And up to that point, he assumes it's for a completed dress. And then. That's wild. <laughs> and then she goes, no, that's just for the fabric. Aaron, I got triggered at this point because my wife and I have had these conversations. Mm -hmm. And this is no way me painting her in a bad light. These are conversations that we've had both ways where we have assumed that something costs something. And no, it actually costs twice as much. Oh, no. That's not what you're paying for. You're actually paying for this. And I, re I remember having similar conversations about where are we going to get this money? And hearing him say, essentially, I can't buy a suit or I can't buy a coat now for the winter. Now, I don't understand that. I, I don't understand conceptually that because I don't live in the, the 1800s. I don't understand what it's like to not have a coat. But what I do understand is what she said afterwards. Essentially, she's saying, I'm tired of being poor. Oh, my gosh. In my head, I said, that's bullshit. I mean, I was so mad at that point because I was like – think because I'm thinking like John, how – not rude. How devastating is that to say that to your husband? And I love his reaction because this is how I would feel in that situation. He basically says, I'm sorry that this isn't the life that I could give you. I'm sorry that I couldn't give you the life that you wanted. And he walks away. And it breaks my heart for both of them because he wants her to have what she wants and what she needs. And he knows he can't give her that. But it's almost unfair to him because she knew that going into it. The beautiful part about this is there is a, res a resolution to this. It doesn't stop at that. This isn't marriage story. This isn't like the story of Meg and her disastrous divorce of her husband. There's this beautiful moment later where she sees him outside her window and she goes down and he's doing this. He's doing this love in action and he says, buy the dress, you know, get the dress made. And she says, no, I can't. He goes, look, I will 
live this winter with this coat. I can, I can handle this. He's essentially saying, Meg, I love you. And this shouldn't Actions. be, this should not be the thing that divides us. And it was a reminder to me, Aaron, that I had to say, you know what? Money should not be the thing that divides my family, that divides the love that I have with my wife. Even though it can cause tension and even though it may just frustrate both of us to all get out in the miscommunication that we have with that, I love the fact that, again, in this honest way, Gerwig is able to say, look, I'm not trying to tie this up in a bow. I'm trying to recognize the fact that this is real stuff. And we never know necessarily if Meg feels like she's poor the rest of her life. But what we know from that conversation that you mentioned is that she recognizes her choice in that, the choice to marry, and that it's a good choice for her. And I love that. I love the fact that she's not making a choice to be either married or poor. She's choosing to love and live in whatever, the better or worse, the rich or poor, <laughs> the, the life or death. Uh, world that she and John are going to have. And that's what makes their relationship really beautiful. Oh, hundred percent agree. hundred percent agree. It, it is absolutely sweet. And the way that she words that, and she says almost exactly what you just said. And she says, I don't care. I want to live this life with John, whatever that is, whatever that looks like that's real marriage. <laughs> that is, that's, that's what everybody gets up in front of a minister or the justice of the peace or whoever generally and pledges till death do us part for better and for worse. I don't care. I just want to do it with you. And that's, what's gotten lost. And that's why we have marriage story, right? They actually go together in a really weird semblance of a way, but that's what happens because it's not about that. Those two characters in marriage story didn't get married because they were committed to whatever the heck happened in their lives. It was all about being with each other. There were so many other factors. And, and Meg represents that choice. That's not getting married because it is the societal belief of the societal thing that you should do. It's because she wants to. And that's super powerful. Um, and that's part of what makes that quote so memorable. And, and I love their story too. And I had a feeling that you would resonate with that one. And you know, just knowing you, of course. Um, and I think that's really great. Well, the two other girls are the main ones. And one of the interesting things is that in the original text and other adaptations, Amy is often played as more of comedic relief, kind of, you know, some of the times when we see them and she's in that 13, 14 year old younger range in the past, She's just whiny and weird and, and just, just, she's crazy. Okay. And, and that's like the Amy that is kind of little spurts in there. And Gerwig recognizes the importance of her. And I think that she provides an amazing comparison to Joe that is super duper duper important. Because what we have in Amy is this sort of, active feminism while also being a part of the way that the times are going. Whereas Joe is definitely fighting against everything that is traditional. She's a rebellious person. She is, Joe is what you would see people going online and being like, you're a feminist. That's the kind of cultural definition of a feminist, right? Is the belief that this is a person that just 
has to be anti-man and anti-everything that exists and every structure. Amy understands it and is willing to work within that to gain the happiest situation for her within that structure. And she wants to use it to her advantage. She's all about going to Paris. She's excited to get that ring and to get that money that Aunt Marge has. She's okay marrying someone, especially if it allows her to do the things she loves, which is paint and be loved, right? And she has some of the best quotes, Patrick. Um, so many. It's very clear to me in reading interviews, and I've read quite a bit about this movie. The Gerwig, I think, almost resonates with her just as much as Joe because she was able to just rattle off Amy quotes instantly. I want to be great or nothing. I mean, that's how many of us have never felt like that, right? Um, the world is hard on ambitious girls. Well, it still is, actually. It, it hasn't changed. One point she says, I don't pretend to be wise, but I am observant. That's a, a big one. And then, of course, she has the really big moment with Lori where he's talking to her and he's telling her, you know, you're a woman and, you know, you can do whatever. Like, you know, you, why are you, he's, she's wanting to quit painting at the time. And she says, and as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money, not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. It may not be for you. But it certainly is for me. And that goes back to that idea that they stated earlier in the film at one point where, you know, they're staying afloat until Mar Amy can marry obscenely wealthy. Like, that's the family goal. Like, that's what kind of has to happen in order for this family to continue going along the way it has. And, man, there is just a beauty and a tragedy, in a sense, to what Amy is going through, both the fact that she realizes this stuff, but the way that she is able to voice it. And I love Florence Pugh's performance and how she is able to express it in both a very frustrated way, but also an understanding and acceptance of I'm going to make the best of my situation way. Uh, it means a lot. And you know, we, I think seeing her become like a main character, almost equal in role to Joe through this film was a really, really cool choice. I think so too. She's got this strategic way about her where she's very self-aware of the world that she's living in. And she doesn't make excuses for why she can and can't have what she wants. She's just realistic. She's not optimistic. She's realistic about the world that she lives in. And I think that that comes to a head when she's having this conversation um, with Laurie about, about marriage, not wanting to be second place to Joe. And she becomes, in that moment for me, 
someone who says, I am my own person and I'm going to make my own decision about life. And I'm going to choose whether or not my happiness is going to be dependent on my marital status. And in some ways, Erin, I feel like she feels the pressure of that more than any other sister. She's the golden goose. She's the, the great white hope. She's the, the one of the four that is probably the most compatible. And it's, it's really played out in a comedic way with, um, with, with Aunt Marge. I mean, I don't, I don't care for Meryl Streep that much. I think I joke with Krisha that she's probably going to get an Oscar nomination for this just because she's in a movie in 2019. But <laughs> I just, <laughs> but the fact is she plays such a great character because she's so blunt about the world that she lives in. And she basically tells, uh, she tells Amy, look, you're the one. Put her, get somebody to put a ring on it and get married because this is the life that's going to be great for you. And I like the fact that at the end of the story, it doesn't feel like Meg, excuse me, uh, that Amy has compromised, that she's still her own person. And that makes her that much more attractive as a character because when you know what you want and you are able to navigate through a culture and a society that are telling you you have to be a certain way, it's different from Joe, who's basically saying, the rule is this, so I'm going to break it. I don't care if I don't understand the rule. I'm going to break it. If it says don't jump, I'm going to jump. Even though the rule is indistinguishable from something else, whereas I think Amy understands the context of the rules, and she knows when to push, she knows when to pull, she knows when to be quiet, she knows when to be loud. And to me, I think that makes her probably one of the stronger sisters of the four. Oh, absolutely. You're right. That meeting with Laurie that you mentioned, I love that how she tells him straight up. She's like, no, don't. Don't do this. Stop it. And she's like, you don't get to come running back now when I have loved you my entire life. That's another like moment that breaks me every single time um, because she has, you know, she's been watching him, adoring him from the side while he's fawning over Joe. And they have that part of that conversation about when they are talking about the economic proposition of marriage. Um, part of that, when they're talking about love, Amy says, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person, which if you've listened to our podcast for very long, you'll know that it's a big deal for me <laughs> in particular. And I just fully believe that. And so I like hearing her, what she says there. And I also love Laurie's response. He says, I believe the poets would disagree, which is <laughs> a beautiful, perfect Laurie-like response and a sure. great thing to consider. But yeah, Amy is uh, phenomenal, and I'm happy with where she ends up. Mm -hmm. You know, and part of that is, of course, tied to Laurie's, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. But and then we have Joe, um, the star of the show, Joe, who is so much a feminist that she has gone by a nickname. That is akin to a man's name because she just does not want to be thought of as only a woman. And Joe is amazing. Um, Joe is Louisa May Alcott in so many ways. The writer who wants to be creative and wants to be known for that and wants to be able to do whatever she wants <laughs> without having to answer to a world that tells her how to live her life. I like one moment with Joe early on when she meets Friedrich. That's his name, by the way. 
Professor Bauer, I believe is his last name. Um, and he is reading her work. She's allowed to do that. And he is like, I don't like it. It's not good. <laughs> oh, she does not take that well. And he tells her that she is good at whatever. And, but it's not going to, this is not what's going to sell. Right. And she says, um, or this is what will sell, but it's not her best work. And she says, I can't afford to starve on praise. Great line, which is very true. We all deal with that even in today's day and world. That's a matter of what do you sacrifice to make more money, to make enough money that you feel you're getting by? What do you sacrifice in your creative process or, you know, in your devotion to the job or the work that you are trying to do? And it's a great response she has. She says, you're not a writer, you're a critic, and the world will not remember a critic. No one will forget Joe March. And I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> also, in a very meta way for us and for anybody in like the film criticism community, there's been all kinds of conversations about this. And just in general, like anyone who is criticizing a piece of creative art, like what's more important here? The person that's trying to analyze it or the act of being creative in and of itself. And she's dead right. Like that's the thing that's so memorable. Um, but yeah, we go on with Joe and Joe is all about this rejection of traditional feminine femininity. And it's, it's amazing to watch her go through this struggle, Patrick. Um, and I don't know. I, I think that it's very evident to me, the love that went into playing her, um, Saoirse Ronan actually found out that Greta Gerwig was going to do Little Women, and she called her and she said, you are giving me this role, I am Joe. That's what Gerwig has said, that that's how it got cast. <laughs> then, and, and so, I mean, what else are you going to do, right? <laughs> um, and so there's, there's a lot of, um, I think, personal investment in her performance that really shines through. And of course, she's a phenomenal actress and one of the best we have right now and I, I just i love this character though who is not patient who gets frustrated who wants so much for herself and just wants to like push the world to give it to her but who also gets to really experience some of those super quiet moments like with beth that she's so well-rounded and through her, I think we get to see the most conflict between someone who doesn't really know everything that she wants or doesn't want at any given moment. And she's just so upset that she's not in charge <laughs> and that she doesn't have full control over it. And I, and I think that's what women feel today still. Like, you can do all of these things, but there's systems that exist that you can't break down on your own. And Joe is the representation of how that feels. She's a beautifully messy character. I think that's the best way that I can describe her because she is loud and bombastic and very much in your face most of the time. And it's refreshing. In a lot of ways, I was like, is this Lady Bird of the 1800s? Because I think it might be. It's a similar kind of 
nonchalant, I don't really care kind of mentality, but at the same time, I really kind of do. Because at the same time, you're right, Aaron, we get this loud, I'm not going to accept the world around me. And at the same time, we get that tender moment with her and mommy where she's talking about, um, you know, when she rejects, uh, when she re- rejects Lori and she's talking to Marmy and she says, I just, I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to be lonely. I mean, that's a human character trait. That's not a female one. That's a human character trait. And I think if we didn't get those types of moments, we wouldn't get as well-rounded of a character that we do with Joe because we know she's ambitious, but we also need those moments where she is with Beth in a way that she's frustrated and mad and sympathetic and all these things at, at the same time and where she's tender with Amy where she plays a mom and a sister at the same time. It's this complete mess of beauty that I think makes her the perfect fit for this anchor of these four women. And I think that even though she's probably not the quote best of the four, I think without her, they probably wouldn't have the life that they do within this narrative for better or for worse. I think they need her equally as much as she needs them. And I think it's fitting that she's the one that kind of stands out as the one that carries the narrative throughout the entire film. We mentioned earlier a couple of the men from the film and uh, little women is definitely not without the men. And more than anything, I can appreciate, maybe it's as a man, maybe it's just as a, as an audience member, the fact that these characters were not stereotypes necessarily. They weren't there to be played opposite these women to kind of make a point. I think all of them in their own way allowed us to value what they were bringing to the table as characters, um, what they were doing for these these four women, these five women. Timothy Chalamet does a fantastic job as Lori. One thing I was actually questioning before the end of the movie was that Lori was probably one of the more interesting male characters in this movie because he seemed to be friends with all these sisters. At one point, he's invited into this club where he gives them this each a key to this mailbox where they can mail secret notes and whatnot. And I thought, this is a different kind of take. I mean, is he a love interest of anybody? And it turns out that he is. But for most of the narrative, he's really a friend to all of them. And that's something that I didn't expect uh, going into this. And then you have uh, Mr. Dashwood, of course, you mentioned who is a book into this, a an added character that I think adds so much to what Gerwig is doing with the character of Joe and, and all these characters in Little Women. But I think all of the, the male characters bring something to the table that not only adds to the narrative from an entertainment standpoint, but also bring value to the role that they have as men in the movie. In particular, I gravitated toward uh, Friedrich and that scene with Joe. I love how honest he is, Aaron. I love the fact that he says, you're a good writer, but this isn't good writing. That he makes a distinction. 
I also like the fact that she says, I'm no Shakespeare. And he goes, thank God, we've already had him. And in those moments of, of criticism, he's giving her praise, but she doesn't recognize it. And it's beautiful because to me, that's a great relationship where you can be honest, authentic, and real, and at the same time, encourage. That's probably the best kind of feedback you can get, not only from a human being, but specifically from a critic. She needs that. And to me, that was probably one of my favorite scenes with her and with him. Yeah, absolutely. They have several of the great little moments. The dance moment, of course, like reminds me of Titanic big time. It's like a little Irish jig where they're in some quiet, you know, basement spot just dancing. The moment I really like with him that doesn't actually concern him as much, though, is when he does come back and he offers to play the piano. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And I, I just think that he's so good and kind, right? And he's so safe, which is part of the, the thing about her picking him over Lori. He's not chaotic and crazy and unpredictable. But he asks, he says, you know, do you, would you allow me the honor of playing the piano? Like, I don't want to offend. And it gives one great, great line <laughs> to Joe's dad, who has been gone to the war for so long. We haven't got to see him. Um, he's played by Bob Odenkirk, which is awesome. And I wish we could have gotten more of him because I love him. But he comes in back and he says, what a terrific young man. I hope he comes back. He'd make a wonderful friend for me. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it. I was like, this is like, and that's kind of like the modernization, right? It's like the, the modern day dad saying, you know, I really like that boy that you brought over and I would like to hang out with him more and talk sports and, you know, watch or play video games or whatever with your boyfriend. So please go date that guy. Cause he's a good one. And it's just the most tender, sweet thing ever. And all of the men seem to have these roles and, and none of them are creepy and terrible and, and it's it's refreshing i go back to that it's refreshing they're not all awful and waiting to like pounce or do something bad or take advantage of the women like these men are all just navigating their own lives within the time period as well right Lori is a rich you know, I can't think of that word, but he's like basically like a trust fund baby, essentially. Like, that's what he is. And so he's gallivanting off in Europe, just hanging out. So what does he have to look forward to? He doesn't have to do a job. He doesn't have to run a business. All he really wants to do is find love. And one thing I like about him, when he meets Joe for the first time, he is supportive. She is it's a great great scene i think because it lays such a, an amazing foundation for some of the themes of like women being told things when joe is being taken to the dance meg is giving her all of these rules do this don't do that you can't do this and then joe being her rebellious self trying to get out of the, the way runs into Lori, and She's reciting some of these. She's like, I can't do that because I can't do, I can't wear this. And, and because I have a stain on my dress, so I can't be seen this way and that way. 
Lori is a great character because he helps push Joe to not settle for being told no. And he says, no, find a solution. Let's go outside and dance. Let's do these. Let's do something different. And he sort of is like that for all three women. He challenges them all. And it's not to say he's necessarily got a better perspective to offer because he doesn't always, but he helps to push them to evaluate and to articulate how they feel and why they feel, whether it's Amy talking about marriage and how that plays out for her. He gets her to bring that out and what she feels about love or even Meg at the debutante ball. One of the scenes that pisses me off the most is when these girls are like, we're going to change your name to Daisy and no, you're going to wear our awesome dress because your dress isn't good enough. And I'm like, bitch, please. This is Hermione Granger. She will turn you into a rat. Mm. But like he, even then he pushes her right to a point where she gets frustrated with him because he's like, no, I don't like you in this. And what he means is you're beautiful in the dress that you have. You're beautiful as Meg, as who you are. You don't need to change to be what these rich girls think you should be. Your name was fine. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I love his role in the story that way. And of course, you know, we get to the end. There's a beautiful moment between him and Joe where she says, you and Amy, are you in love? And, and this is, man... I had written in my very first like thoughts after seeing Little Women was, you know what, Greta Gerwig, if you want to just put Timothy Chalamet and then Saoirse Ronan in every movie you make together, that's fine. Because their acting and their chemistry in that moment, the way that Timmy plays Laurie and he's like looks at the ground and he has that ever-present grin, but it's also obviously like there's some underlying hurt there from before. And he says... Joe, I want to say one thing, and then we'll put it away forever. I'll always love you. It's a different kind of love with Amy. And I think he has adopted Amy's viewpoint. I really do. I believe he has chosen a love. Some will call it settled, and I understand that. But I think that he and Amy decide this is who we are going to love. Right. It's not just something that, quote, happens and it ends up being a beautiful relationship that really does work. Um, and so his impact, though, on the entire family is really profound. You know, it's because of him that they end up meeting Mr. Lawrence and John Cooper. Like he, he is like the catalyst for all of those things. And it's just a, a really awesome way to weave through that story and i think it's 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 nice to have male characters that men can look at like mr lawrence and like uh, mr march and say these are good men like this is not a movie that is anti-man in any way and i hope that it doesn't get framed like that ever yeah i i agree and there's a great moment that i love between uh marmy and father march where He's talking to Friedrich and Friedrich says, I'm going to go out west because it seems like that's where you can have dreams and, and whatnot. And Father March goes, I think I should go out there to explore my dreams. And Marmy goes, no, you don't have dreams. Or I don't know how she words it, but she essentially just kind of hilariously slaps him down, which gives kind of 
this sense of understanding of their relationship, how deeply they love each other, how long they've been together. And without even seeing an extensive history of their relationship, we know how comfortable they are with each other, how deeply they love each other. By the way, Laura Dern, I adore her. I think that she is my, not my soulmate by any means, but if I had to pick an actress that I could just like put on a pedestal for a couple more movies, she would be it. She has done some phenomenal work this year, and I'm glad to see her in a positive role to finish out the year with Little Women. But you're right, Aaron. I mean, these are men who are not treated as objects or as um, banter magnets or as things to be spat against, that they are actually a part of the narrative that make these relationships valuable. And and Laurie, I think, is is a great example because of the way that he connects with the sisters and allows them to be honest about where they are through conversations with him. He's a Jiminy Cricket in some way to them. And it's important because I don't know that they would be pushed like they, they are without him in their lives. Well, to wrap things up, let's get to our connecting points. Uh, Aaron, do you want to kick us off? I would be happy to. So I mentioned earlier, I had a ton of connecting points. This movie is just literally chock full of them. Moment after moment after moment, I can be like, oh gosh, I'm so connecting. Like I said, I cry when it's happy, cry when it's sad, cry when it's inspiring. But the one that I ultimately went to has a personal relevance, I guess, in a sense, probably why I ended up going to that one. And it's Lori asking Joe to marry him. So they're out in this field and, you know, we've kind of known this was coming all along. And I think we know that it's not going to go well for him. And we know that he's going to be turned down because we've already gotten that information. And so it's like this weird impending doom that you it's like a it's like a train wreck right like you see it about to happen and you're just like no 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 the acting here again the chemistry between these two it's perfect and he starts proclaiming his love for her for the first time instead of just being the playful friend and he tells her you know i changed for you i gave up billiards i waited i never complained he said i'm not good enough I can't love anyone else, and I thought that you'd love me back. But you won't, because it's not true for you. And that was extremely hard to watch someone go through. And to really bear his soul to this person that he's been in love with for years. So you think about like a childhood relationship where one person once more and the other doesn't and he's waited and waited and he finally does it and she just spends all her time arguing with him and giving him all the reasons why they're going to be unhappy and he says that he'd rather be hanged and while she's giving him all of these reasons she's like we'll fight and we would argue and we would bicker and it would be miserable and he just says, I love you, Joe. I love you, Joe. I love you, Joe, over and over and over. And it's heartbreaking to me. Like he's just trying with, it's like he's 
hoping that if he says it enough times, she's going to say, I love you back. That's what it feels like. And, it, and if you've been there, you understand where he's coming from when he says, I'd rather be hanged. And he's, her response to him is, Teddy, I don't believe that I will ever marry. And he says, I think you will marry Joe. I think you will find someone and love them and you will live and die for them because that's your way. And I'll watch. And that's hard to see someone go through. Um, and it's hard to go through yourself. And he knows her as well as she knows herself. He knows her better than she knows herself, probably, in so many ways. And he's right, because that's what Joe does. Is she lives and dies for everybody else. She's done it for Beth. She's done it for the rest of her family. And he knows that eventually she's going to want that companionship on a level that leads to marriage. And he's left unable to be a part of that and to experience it from the outside. And, and I've lived that. And so it's extremely well depicted in a way that, you know, brings out that pain, but also reminds you of those feelings you have that lead to such an emotional outpouring and, and almost like begging of this person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. And it feels very counter to the culture because they live in a time when he should be able to say, I pick you <laughs> and I'm the guy with the money and you just say yes, because you need me. But he doesn't use that. He doesn't lord that over her. That's not the relationship they have. And it's beautiful, but also heartbreaking at the same time. And it leads to that moment that you mentioned briefly where she's talking to her mom. She's seeking comfort. And Marmy says, do you love him? And Joe's trying to talk herself into it at this point. And Joe's response is, I want to be loved. And Marmy says, that's not the same thing. And... Man, so right, Patrick. Like, how many times did we get into relationships in life because we want to be loved? Because we're in it to get that out of it, not to give back. And ultimately, this works out for the best because Joe realizes, like, she's not in that place. She doesn't want to give that to him in that moment. She can't give that to him. And so it's a selfish feeling of wanting to be loved, but it's completely understandable at the same time. And it's part of that massive conflict that she feels between independence and wanting to be part of what the world considers the norm and have this relationship. And it's, it's just the scene that kind of like wraps it all up for me. And of course you put that little personal bow on top and it is very impactful. Well, the impact, I think, for me in that scene is that they're both right and that they, they have to accept that rightness with each other in that they're not right for each other. I mean, I think you worded it beautifully earlier when you said that he's chaotic. He's not meant for her. And I say not meant, not in the destiny sense, but in the fact that if you want the best for someone, 
you understand that you may not be the best for that person. And while he's trying to probably manufacture that or try to put that square peg in a round hole, they're both saying things that are very honest to each other about why that works and why it doesn't. And for me, when I watch that scene play out, when he says that pivotal line and I'll watch those three words are his way of saying goodbye. I'm done. It reminds me of the scene in Love Actually that's not played nearly as impactfully where you have you have our love interest with the cue cards and he leaves the scene and he says, enough. It's that same same kind of reaction. Okay, we're done. Um, in some ways, it, it makes it where you don't even need that that scene where he says, let me just say this and then we'll, we'll put it to bed. But it in this case, it reinforces that that scene quite a bit. So very, very touching, very deep, and very much a connecting point. It was a contender for mine as well, but I have to go back and think about the moment that I remember the most distinctly. Meg's conversation with her husband at the dinner table was a really close second to this, um, but ultimately Beth's death stood as probably the most impactful for me, and I think it was... We don't talk about technical stuff a lot on the show, but I think this is where uh, Gerwig and the cinematography, the way in which she frames this entire sequence of of Beth's death uh, so simply, tragically, delicately, I don't know what the word is, I think it's all three of those, to allow you to really sit in the moment. Um, we talked earlier about how Gerwig goes back and forth in time. She uses the color palette. She uses different elements to kind of show us where we are in time. And interestingly enough, she parallels Beth's battle with Scarlet Fever with this other illness that I don't know if the movie tells us what it is, just that she's ill. It may be Scarlet Fever that's come back. I don't know. But in any case, what we see is a parallel of Joe's relationship with her, the way that she sits with her, the way that she comforts her. And it continues to go back and forth, back and forth. And the final moments of her death are portrayed in this parallel moment where Joe is fallen asleep in a chair in Beth's room. She wakes up and Beth is not there anymore. She's left the bed. She's not in the bed anymore. She runs downstairs. It's Christmas morning. And there's this great shot of Marmy. And the camera in the foreground, the camera pans to the left. And there's and there's Beth eating cereal or whatever it is she's eating. And it's this joyful moment. She's cured of scarlet fever. She's broken free. And then a moment later, because we've experienced that as an audience, we see Joe wake up again in this dark, cold, blue-gray setting. And it's the same scene, but we know what's happened. She slowly walks down the stairs. She looks in the kitchen, and there's Marmy in that same seat. She turns to Joe, and she just shakes her head. And it's the lack of music, I think, that helps with this. There's a very specific way in which the music, the score is used in this movie. There's not a lot here. 
I, I want to say I remember, I need to watch this again. This is why I want to watch it again. But I think there's a something that Marmy says. She's she's mouthing, "I'm sorry," or "I couldn't help her." I think just something where uh, Marmy was just feeling the weight of the fact that she couldn't save her, that she's lost her daughter, and it was so devastating for me because even though I saw it coming, even though I saw the parallel of the fact that in one moment it was joyful, this moment was not going to be that, there was still this ounce of hope that I felt maybe, just maybe. And now getting a chance to kind of sit in that for a couple of minutes, I think Gerwig allows us to grieve with the family in those little moments. I, I remember watching the scene and then hearing around me these little people just you could just tell just people were emotionally invested in this my wife especially because this is this is right up her alley she's got the got the tissue and i i just thought it was beautifully shot i thought that it was a tender way to say goodbye to someone who as we mentioned before didn't have a huge global impact didn't have a huge cultural impact but had an impact enough to make an echo with this family and with the friends that were connected with them and in a lot of ways connect with an audience that's watching this play out on screen. So kudos to everybody involved in making the scene what it was. It was beautifully done, and I think it conveyed exactly what Gerwig and company wanted us to feel. Could not agree more. It is definitely a very, very hard scene to get through. Yeah. Fortunately, the rest of the movie makes up for it in terms of just being all sorts of emotional greatness. We hope that if you're listening to this conversation that you've agreed with us in all this. If not, well, it stinks to be you. So there it is. <laughs> and that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. Coming up in just 24 little hours is our conversation on the 1988 action hit Die Hard, voted on by our faithful patrons. And following that, exclusively for our supporters, is some bonus content where we talk about our favorite films of the last decade. So we hope you will join us for both of those. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.